Welcome to the Declaration Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Sherrill. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. The mountains tremble at the name of Jesus. All of hell flees and trembles at the name of Jesus. And I've said this multiple times and I'll continue to say it. I believe it. Um, you know, the, the name of Jesus can speak both power and peace at the same time. And it's a strange thing. I, the only way I can do that is to tell you testimonies from my own life. When, when I needed to see the power of God absolutely step into a situation, but I also needed to know the peace of God in that immediate moment because I was unraveling. And I don't know about you, um, but maybe you're in a situation of life right now where you need the great I am to just step in and fill in that blank. You need the great I am to step in and, and be that thing that it is that you're begging for. This morning, we're going to talk about the bread of life. We began last week in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's what's called the prologue. It starts in verse 1. It says, in beginning, basically saying, before all things, he was. Before there was a when or a where, he was. So in other words, it's saying to begin, to begin. To begin was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was there in the beginning. Um, it goes on to say, if you look, in, it says that the spirit was also hovering at this time. And so we see the Trinity active. We see the fullness of the Godhead, three and one, one and three. Um, to try to explain the Trinity would take years of, of you know, doctorate theology to unpack. And even still, I don't think you could actually explain the fullness of the Trinity. It's very, very challenging and difficult. But on just the childlike faith level to say, man, I believe in God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. He's one in three. He's three in one. He's equal parts of one God. It's very hard to explain. And, and every metaphor seems to fail to try to grab it, to help us understand. But here's the one thing I want you to see about this is that the fullness of God was present when there was nothing. He has always been. He is transcendent. That's a big word that we're going to continue to hear. We established three things as we dug into these 18 verses last week, and that was these things right here. Number one, Jesus is the eternal word of God. That is transcendent. Before time, he was. There is no beginning and no end. He is the beginning, he is the end, and he is the middle. And human language can't really do justice to try to explain it. And our minds cannot handle trying to even fathom how long forever is, right? I mean, it's just impossible. It's frustrating. But it's forever. It never ends. And he has always been. He is the eternal word of God. Number two, he's the creative word of God. All things were created by him and through him. We see this in the Genesis story. We see this in Colossians, some of my favorite passages. All things were created by him. He spoke a word and worlds were created and formed. Number three, he's the incarnate word, God with us. God with us. Jesus chose to leave heaven for the humility of humanity. God with us. He is the incarnate word of God. So you're caught up. You don't have to go to the podcast. There it was. Don't you wish I could do that every week? Like, done. Drop the mic. Okay. The, the writings of the Apostle John go in to describe many more important things. For example, let's just walk through this because it's hard to catch up. There's a lot that happens in these six chapters before we get to 
the first I am statement of Jesus. So in chapter one, we see John the Baptist. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He introduces him as a few things. Number one, the Lamb of God. He introduces him as someone who um, ranks before him because he was before him. He's, He's actually speaking of the transcendent nature of Jesus. He's introducing him as the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, hey, I have come to baptize about him in water, but he's going to come and baptize in the Holy Spirit. He's introducing him as the Son of God, the Messiah. We also see Jesus call his first disciples in chapter 1. Chapter 2 steps on the scene. We see the wedding of Cana. It's one of my favorite passages. It's where Jesus performs the first miracle of turning water into wine. There's a lot of theological debate across different denominational traditions about what this was. Can I tell you, as I read the text in the context of it, he waited till the end to break out the good stuff. Right? Like, all these people are like, hey, time out, wait a minute. This is about the time they break out the strawberry hill. Not you. What's up? See, now I knew where you were in high school. <laughs> Right? You're like, all oh, the boons, right? The boons. I see you. I see you. All right. Um, so I'm just here to contend that I, I don't think that it was Welch's, all right? Um, it was good stuff. And, and, and let me just say this. I still believe that even in this room today, Jesus wants to turn some water into wine. He wants to take the impossible and make it possible. He wants to talk to the ordinary and call it extraordinary. He wants to perform the supernatural miracle. He's, let me tell you, the Messiah is someone's miracle today. I believe it. I've hinged my whole life upon it. The Messiah is someone's miracle in this room today. In chapter, oh, hey, let me say this. We also see some emotion from Jesus in chapter two. He clears the temple. That was an interesting conversation, <laughs> I'm sure. In chapter three, we see this conversation with Nicodemus. Um, Jesus explained or tries to explain being born again, being born of water and spirit. I'm not sure if Nicodemus totally got that all, but that's the, the, the text right there. This is where we also see this famous verse, John 3.16. If you don't know anything, you know this from watching NFL, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We see John the Baptist exalt Christ in chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. People are looking to him instead of Jesus. And, and John is clearly saying, time out, time out. Don't look at the wrong person here. Um, in chapter 4, Jesus gives this world-changing message to a Samaritan girl. This is an interesting choice of, of um, who he's going to deliver this message to about what the future of the church and the future of life and relationship is going to look like. You know, it's an interesting thing that he would speak such profound depth of theology, world-shattering, changing truth to a Samaritan girl. Um, that's a whole other message. He speaks of living water, um, and her life is forever changed. She goes on to tell everyone she can about this encounter with Jesus. Many become saved. Many become followers because of this encounter. So this is, and, and, and this is what happens when we encounter Jesus and experience him firsthand. It changes us. We can't help ourselves. In chapter 5, we see Jesus heal the helpless. There's a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. After the power of Jesus heals this paralytic, the man's life is forever changed. He goes on to tell people that Jesus healed him. So we begin to see Jesus is becoming a very popular figure here. So much so, the Jews of the day begin to not like him. They want to do something about it. The healing of this paralytic was on the Sabbath. This gave Jews reason to come after Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He just doubles down. He begins to further proclaim who he is, the Son of God who came to save the world and give life eternal. 
Here we see Jesus contrast himself against both John the Baptist and Moses, all to try to help people see him for who he really is. He is God in flesh. He is incarnate. So this takes us to chapter 6. Many scholars believe that between chapter 5 and chapter 6, we have about five or six months that pass. And, and in that time frame, it's, it's believed that um, John the Baptist, Herod had killed John the Baptist during this time frame, and disciples had continued to preach all throughout Galilee. Yet Jesus, still gaining more and more popularity, finds himself being followed by large crowds, large amounts of people, and they're amazed at not only what they see, but also what they've been hearing. We see Jesus retreat up to a hillside or a mountain to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. He's with his dudes, right? He's got his disciples around. This mountain might indicate an intended parallel to Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. It's here that Jesus sees a very large crowd gathering, even in this remote place where they are. And scripture tells us that the Jewish Passover feast was near. So culturally speaking, these people of this day have a few things already weighing in their minds. They're thinking of a few things because of Passover coming. They're thinking of blood. They're thinking of flesh. They're thinking of lambs. They're thinking of unleavened bread. All of these things are normal conversational patterns during Passover. So that's already kind of in the context of their minds. But they're longing for a new Moses. They're longing for that one who would deliver them from the Roman bondage. They didn't quite totally get that they were looking at the promised Messiah, the one prophesied about, who was coming to deliver people not just from this Roman bondage, but from every kind of bondage. They didn't see it. And here's where we see Jesus and his disciples begin to take five loaves of bread and two fish from this kid in order to feed a lot of people. So that's where we pick up in John 6. And I want you to notice in this passage, if we're not going to dig into the, the feeding. That's a whole other sermon, I'm sure, soon to come. But I want you to notice that it actually qualifies 5,000 men it says men. It doesn't speak of the number that a potential women and children might be involved in this scenario. And so we know there's at least 5,000 men. 5,000 men. I mean, what, what could this have been? As I studied this, you know, there was some, some uh, theologians that said, potentially, this feeding of this number of, of, of people was significant. It was a picture of a couple things. One, it could have been a, a picture of what was coming in the upper room at the Last Supper. It could have been a picture that was very sacramental in that moment, the, that first moment of the breaking of bread. And, and I'm not sure. There's, there's no, like, assured, like, this is what Jesus said it was doing. We just know that a miracle takes place because there's 5,000 men no count of women and children, and with five loaves of bread and two fish, they're all fed with leftovers, 12 baskets full to be exact. We're going to revisit this another day because, man, I, I wanted to preach that text instead of the next, but I know that we're in the, so we've got to go. Okay. <clears throat> so I want you to see this. He takes care of their physical hunger in this moment, but was proving that he was offering so much more not just their physical hunger, but he could take care of their spiritual need, their spiritual hunger. So at that point, we see Jesus retreat once again. 
Then we see him perform another miracle. He walks on water. He brings peace to a situation. And he gets the disciples safely immediately to their destination. This leads us to chapter 6, verse 22. That's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to have it on the screen. If you do not have a Bible, we want to give you a free Bible. It's in the back there on the table. Make sure you grab one of those. You can grab it now if you want to follow along in an actual book and not just the screen. But we're going to start in verse 22. This is where it starts. It says this. So the next day after all this had happened... The crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat and they realized that Jesus had not gone with them. So the day after this miracle of feeding all of these people, some of these people stuck around. A lot of them hung out. Several boats from Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee, lands near the place where the Lord had blessed this bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went across to Capernaum to look for him. Where's, where'd he go? Where's he at? Doesn't look like he's coming back, so they decided, well, let's just go find him. We want to be where he is. Verse 25, they find him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? I love that. They ask rabbi. This is, a, this, is a phrase, this is a word that's usually reserved as a place of honor. It's, it's, it's teacher. They're calling him teacher. When a rabbi would ask someone to follow him, it was a big deal. Most rabbis of the day would only go to the elite. They would only go to the prettiest. They would only go to the most educated. They would only go to the family with the right upbringing, the right pedigree. And so here you have a mass of people who are calling Jesus rabbi. Understand, when Jesus went to look for his disciples, he didn't go to look for the right pedigree necessarily. He didn't go to look for all the right, pretty popular people necessarily. He went to fishermen. He was more concerned about the least of these than the most of those. So these people say, Rabbi. I love that. Jesus kind of ignores this question. It's kind of feeble and clumsy. So he just decides to go straight to the heart of the matter. I don't care about, don't worry about when I got here. He says this, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. He's saying this is not, this, this, is, a, this is about, you. you're making this about you. It's not about me. You want what I can do, not necessarily who I am. Look at verse 27. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of approval. This is Jesus pointing out the obvious. You've seen wonderful things. You have seen how the grace of God enabled a crowd of over 5,000 to be fed that we can qualify from Scripture. No telling how many were there. You've seen this, is what he's saying. Instead of your thoughts being turned to God who did all this, all you continue to think about is the bread, is what Jesus is saying. It's as if Jesus said, you cannot think about your souls for thinking about your stomachs. This leads us to our first point, which is actually a question this morning. Are we hungry for the person of Jesus or the provision of Jesus? Are we hungry for the person of Jesus or just the provision of Jesus? Let me say this, man. In our culture, it's very difficult for us to divorce ourselves from the reality of being just inundated, raised up in a capitalistic consumer culture. It's much easier for us to default to things like, what's in this for me? That's why it was so mind-boggling for the most of North American continent when Rick Warren puts his book out, Purpose Driven Life, and the very first chapter, day one, begins by saying, it's not about you. I read that and I was like, okay. 
I was so shocked at the amount of people that could not get past that phrase. I was like, really? <laughs> but seriously, I mean, people were stuck right there. Like, whoa, whoa, time out. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are we hungry for the person of Jesus or the provision of Jesus? Is our view of God one that is intimate or of entitlement? Let me say that again. Thank you. I like it. Talk back to me. I like it. Is our view of God one that is intimate or of entitlement? Jesus says, don't be so concerned with perishable things or the temporary fix. Spend your effort. Spend your energy on what's eternal. He's saying, look at me. I'm right here in front of you. I'm the only one that can satisfy the hunger of your soul. I'm the only one that can reach inside and touch the deepest longing, the deepest hunger of your very soul. The hunger in your heart for truth. I am truth, he's saying. The hunger in your heart for life. I am life, abundant and eternal. The hunger in your heart for love. I am love, all-consuming, that outlasts sin and death. I'm the only one that can do that. That is who I am. I am the great I am. I fill every void. I furnish every victory. I give hope for the hurting. I complete what is incomplete. I repair what is ruined. I am truth. I am life. I am love. This is what Jesus is trying to help them see and understand. He's, listen, don't miss the forest for the trees, basically, right? Seek the eternal life that only I can give. That's what Jesus is saying. Seek the eternal life only I can give. Are we hungry for the person of Jesus or the provision of Jesus? Is our view of God one that is intimate or of entitlement? Don't miss it. Don't miss the forest for the trees. December 17th, 1903. Who was here? Anyone? No. Okay. Orville and Wilbur Wright, bicycle merchants who went on to become the fathers of modern aviation, sent their sister a telegram. It read, Sustained flight for 59 seconds. Hope to be home for Christmas. So excited about this news, the sister takes this telegram to the local Dayton, Ohio newspaper. The paper found the telegram noteworthy and ran a small headline on the back page of that paper. And it said this, popular bicycle merchants to be home for Christmas. Sometimes we miss it. Don't miss the extraordinary and eternal because of being blinded by the ordinary and temporary. Are we hungry for the person of Jesus or the provision of Jesus? Secondly, is our hunger for what is eternal or temporary? Are we chasing eternal or temporary? I mean, Father, open our eyes to see. Do we see Jesus as able? Do we see him as our beginning, middle, and our end? Is he all sufficient? Can we see how he has moved and worked in our lives? Is that enough for us to lift our eyes a little higher, to recognize our true hunger and need, and it can only be met by him? I mean, back in this, it's, it's Jesus is talking. It's as if he's saying here, do you want your soul satisfied, or do you want to keep trying to satisfy yourself? The crowd seems only interested in their physical satisfaction, a temporary, a temporary quick fix. I mean, they had received an unexpected and free meal, but they wanted more. Look at verse 28. They reply, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Listen, church, we still have this dilemma sometimes. It's not about doing. It's about what is about to be done, what Jesus is going to do. And they're asking a question. It's an age-old question. We still ask the question, well, what should we do? What should we do? It's not about our works. It's about his work he did on the cross. 
But we still ask the question, what should we do? Verse 28 is a question of our legalistic programming. What can we do to get this? And look at the divine answer to Jesus in 29. He says, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. That's it. This is the only work. Believe. It's not work to get to me. It's coming to me and receive. It's not do some, be a good moral person. It's believe in me. It's not, how can I please God through my effort and my goodness and my works? On the contrary, it is, God is pleased because of Jesus. And because of his goodness, I joyfully choose to serve and work. That's what it is. Look at what happens next, sadly. Verse 30, the people answer, show us a miraculous sign. If you want us to believe in you, what can you do? <laughs> what? You kidding? because it's as if all of the other miraculous supernatural signs weren't enough, right? I've got five pieces of bread and two fish. Here's 10,000 meals, whatever. I mean, you know, however many, as if that's not enough. Show us a miraculous sign. If you want us to believe in you, Jesus, what can you do? This is the only thing that came to my mind as I was writing this. Have you ever heard J.D., hello, right here, see him? He has this thing that he does where he says, dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> Put a quarter in, right? That's, that's the thing that as I'm studying and writing this, I'm seeing J.D. in my, my mind saying, dance, monkey. You know, put a monkey in. Yeah, or put, it, put a quarter in. I'll, I'll, I'll do it for you. That's, that's what I, I see all these people. Hey, Jesus, thanks for the, the meal. I saw what you did back there with these things. I've heard of what you can do, but what can you do for us now? What more can you do to prove that you are who you say that you are? We demand it. I mean, show us what you got. I mean, they're thinking if we can see, then we'll believe. But actual divine order is believe first and then see. Let me say that again. I don't know if you heard me. They're saying if we can just see it, then we'll believe. But the actual divine order is, no, believe and then you'll see. Why do I say this? John 11, verse, verse 40, one of my favorite, and I say this all the time. I know you're going to get sick of that. The raising of Lazarus, we'll get there. But this is what he says in John 11, verse 40. He says, Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would what? See the glory of God. That's why Jesus said, simply believe. Believe first, then you will receive. What is their response? So they come back with this, verse 31. After all, I mean, our ancestors, they ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. I want to reiterate our second point in question. Do we hunger for what is eternal or for what is temporary? Are we trying to feed our flesh or feed our spirit? Look at the people's reply. If you are indeed more than Moses, what more can you do than manna? Is what they're saying. They're still so focused on the temporary. I mean, Jesus, Moses gave our ancestors manna, bread from heaven. So verse 32, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father did that. And now he is offering you the true bread from heaven. True bread. Bread that will satisfy the soul. Not just provision for life today. Not just for right now. But provision for life eternal. How easy it is to only look at past precedent, past precedent, how easy it is to say, um, 
Well, this is what I know. This is what's happened. Rear view mirror type of thinking. I mean, look at the people. But Jesus, what about Moses and the manna and what he did? Rather than seeing what was right in front of them. We too often fix our sight on the God who was and what God has done versus what he is doing right now in our lives or what he's trying to do. We're far too often satisfied on the temporary manna of Moses rather than the eternal miracle of the Messiah. Think about it. So Jesus corrects him. It wasn't Moses. It was my father. My father did that. It was my father who provided for your ancestors back then. And it is my father who is providing for you today. He is offering you true bread, not temporary bread. He is offering an eternal satisfaction, not a temporary solution. Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. They're still thinking in a temporary mindset. Give it to us every day. In verse 35, Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. It's me. I am. The true bread is me. I am the bread of life. And still, I don't think they're, they're picking up what Jesus is trying to lay down here. You know, bread's an interesting metaphor that Jesus is using for himself. Bread is the most widely eaten food in the entire world. It provides a larger share of people's energy and protein than any other food. I don't know if you knew that or not. Bread is made by making dough that consists chiefly of flour or grain meal mixed with water or milk. It comes in many shapes, colors, brands, and flavors. It can be toasted, roasted, baked, heated, and even fried if you really want to do that. I'm sure at the rodeo, someone's doing it. Bread can be prepared in a variety of ways. Cornbread, breadsticks, buns, biscuits, baguettes, bagels, donuts, cakes, croutons, croissants, muffins, even rolls. It can be sliced <laughs> or diced. Bread is an important part of a balanced diet. When I was in Turkey, I was taken back by one of the missionaries that I talked to and got to know really well because he was talking about bread. and He was saying, you know, bread is probably one of the more um, visible foods that you'll see. In fact, the people all over the Middle East, really, but in Turkey especially, what he would tell me is, don't be surprised if you begin to walk through the streets and you see bread sitting on windowsills because they know that there are people who are less fortunate even than them and they need to eat. And so the bread that they don't eat, they'll just place on their windowsills because they would never waste it. It, it. It's nourishment for people. And so they would put it on their windowsills and if people needed bread, they would come and grab it and they would eat and that's how they would get their meal that day. It was very, very interesting to hear that story. It's never wasted. It's never wasted. It's the most basic way to nourish and fill a stomach. But bread can become outdated. Has anybody ever had a, a moldy piece of bread? Whoever developed penicillin, I'm like, I don't, that, uh, do, do, why did you look at that and go, I'm going to put that in me and it's going to help me? I don't know, right? That's where moldy, forget it. Um, whatever. It can become outdated. It can mold. It can grow stale. It, it can become too hard to eat sometimes. I mean, there's even stores dedicated to day-old bread. Have you seen these? We used to do that in high school. It was awesome. We'd go to that day-old bread store and get those little pies. They were incredible. Essentially and sadly, some bread can seemingly become of no value. But there is another type of bread that is more vital to our existence than physical bread. It's the bread of Jesus, the bread of life. I don't find it ironic whatsoever that it's such an important part of daily life for people, especially in Turkey or the Middle East. 
I don't find it ironic either that being that it is the most basic thing that everyone knows, that everyone experiences and touches and holds and and consumes, it's the most basic thing to fill a stomach and to satisfy hunger. So Jesus uses bread. But he says, hey, this isn't just to temporarily fill your stomach. I'm the bread of life. If you want to know life, that's me. I'm the one that provides and satisfies in ways that nothing else can. And he never grows outdated. He never grows moly. He never grows old. And he never gets stale. If you do a quick search of the Gospels, you're going to find bread referenced often. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus is responding to the devil in the wilderness when he said, It's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Knowing what you know now, that verse might seem a little different. So Jesus indicates early on that there is more to life than just physical bread. In the Lord's Prayer, which can be found in Matthew 6, 11, and in Luke 3, Jesus says to pray like this, give us today our daily bread. We are encouraged to pray for bread, which represents our daily basic needs. It's also probably a reference to the daily Old Testament miracle of manna that the children of Israel received in the wilderness. Right before the death of Jesus, he breaks bread. And shares a cup with his disciples as a reminder. It's why we do this every week that we do. It declares the Lord's death until he comes. It's a reminder of the sacrifice. Luke twenty two nineteen 19 says, And he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, it's a physical picture. Not only am I going to provide for your daily need, I am going to provide for every need. Every need. I am the bread of life. I am the one that will nourish not only your body, but your soul. That's me. That's me. Bread is a powerful metaphor for what we need to survive in this life and in the next. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Here we are told that if we hunger for the right things, we will be satisfied. If we hunger for the wrong things, we will never be satisfied. So I wonder today, church, what is it that we are hungry for? What are we hungry for? Verse 35 of John 6, getting back to the main text. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the source of life. I'm the source of life. It's just a reiteration of Genesis 1 and John 1. In the beginning was him, and the light was the life of men. We see that in John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The word never is actually emphatic in the Greek. Never. You will never be hungry again. You will never be thirsty again. You will absolutely be satisfied. Let me say this, believer, churchgoer, When we find ourselves feeling lack and we think that that's a spiritual hunger or thirst, sometimes we probably find ourselves, does God hear me? I can't sense his presence. I don't feel his nearness. He's not left you. He's not abandoned you. He's not forsaken you. He is the bread of life just as he was, just as he is, just as he will always be. And I know that sometimes we find ourselves in that place. But in matters of the soul, I would challenge that that if we find ourselves there, I would begin to push back and say, okay, well, what is it that we have not surrendered? 
What is it that we're trying to hold on to? What is it that we're trying to hide? Are we trying to feed our flesh in some way, chasing after the temporary? Are we leaning into trust in the God of eternity, the one who gave us the bread of life to satisfy our soul, not so that we could continue to try to self-satisfy? Personally speaking, anytime I feel a depth of hunger and a lack of spiritual satisfaction, it is directly proportionate to a lack of humility and a lack of spiritual surrender. Can I say that again? This is me. This is me telling you, anytime I feel a lack in my spiritual satisfaction, it is directly proportionate to a lack of humility in my life or a lack of yieldedness. So I would challenge the second question that we asked once again this morning. Do we hunger for what is eternal or temporary? What are we hungering for? Look at verse 36. Jesus then rebukes this crowd for the lack of faith. He says, but you have not believed in me, even though you have seen me. I am the bread of life, the only thing that will satisfy your soul and ensure your eternity. And you have had the unique privilege of seeing me, but you still don't believe. Seeing doesn't necessarily lead to believing, but believing will absolutely lead to seeing. Jesus goes on with this encouragement in 37. However, those the Father has given me will come to me. I will never reject them. There's that word again, never. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own. And this is the will of God, that I should not even lose one of all these he has given me, but that I should raise them up on the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him shall have an eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. So Jesus emphatically says, I'm never going to leave you. God is never going to allow me to lose one of you who believes in me. It's not going to happen. And those who see his son and believe, they're going to have eternal life. That's the whole point of John's writing right there. Verse 41 through 46, we see some begin to complain and argue, questioning Jesus, what he said. There's always the religious crowd in the room. There's always the skeptic and the cynical. And they're always going to push back. Always, it's always gonna happen. It happened then, and can I tell you something, church? It happens now, it happens today. Anytime Jesus begins to move in a way that is life-altering, there's always going to be the cynic, the skeptic, and that religious spirit in the room that's gonna wanna push back, and that's exactly what happened. People were trying to reason it out. They're trying through logic to figure this out, and Jesus just shuts it down. Sadly, Sadly, we still see people doing the very same thing today. Instead of coming to Jesus and surrender, many contemplate Jesus and choose to argue over it. Jesus said it in verse 47 of these people, and it still holds today. He says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. He goes on, anyone who eats the bread of heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He's saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm the great I am. Just to review, are we hungry for the person of Jesus or just the provision of Jesus? Do we want him or only what he can give us? Is our hunger for what is eternal or temporary? I mean, just examine what it is that you're, you're hungry for. Well, let me ask it this way. What is it you're chasing after? What are you chasing after? We could dig deeper. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What is it that you're going to put in front of other things? Is our hunger for what's eternal or temporary? Are we hungry for the flesh? Are we hungry for the spirit? 
this morning. He's the bread of life. And we come to him and we depend on him for our daily bread, for those things that we need to get through the day, whether it be food or a place to lay our head or a home or the finances to make it through. We depend on him and everything is from him. It's all because of him. It's by him, through him, and for him. He is our daily bread. But also, it's more than that. He's the bread of life. He holds your eternity. The abundance of your life will be measured by your surrender to him. The abundance of your life will be indicative of your surrender to him. He holds it all. He's the bread of life. He not only provides for your daily, but he provides for your eternity. He is the only thing that can satisfy every part of your being. Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And that's why week by week, we believe it's sacramental. I don't believe in what's called transubstantiation. I don't believe that this actually turns into the physical body of Christ and that turns into the blood of Christ. I do believe, however, in something called consubstantiation. And in layman's terms, in my best ability to understand it, I'll say this. I believe when we come to the table, some call it Eucharist, some call it communion, some call it Lord's Supper. But when we come to the table, I believe that something supernatural happens. That's why the church for thousands of years have said it's sacramental. It's sacramental. We meet with God in this place. And he is the bread of life. And his body was broken so that we could be made whole. Why? Because we're broken. We've seen that for the last few weeks talking about Genesis 3. We were broken and he was whole. He became broken so that we could be made whole. He was full and we were empty. And he was willing to spill his blood on a cross so that we could be filled. So it's a deep privilege to come to the table of the Lord. And he invites you. He invites you to come. Just as he invited all of these that says, I'm the bread of life. I want you to have eternity. I want you to know abundance. This morning, there's probably some of you in the room. You've had a relationship with religion. And you've had a relationship with church. But this morning, I want to invite you to a vital, growing a live relationship with Jesus. He's your bread of life. He's going to provide for your daily needs and he's going to provide for your eternal need. And if you would like to come to know him this morning, it's just a matter of surrender. I believe in you, Jesus. I'm going to call upon your name that I might be saved. It's that simple. Jesus, come take over my life. I surrender. Thank you for taking care of my daily need. I want to invite you to, to change my eternal need to satisfy that. Heal my heart, heal my mind, make me a new creation. There's so many things that we could talk about with it. But just know this, the bread of life is here for you. And so as we worship for the next few minutes, I'm going to invite you. We're going to have prayer partners standing on this wall over here. I'm going to invite you to come and respond to the Lord in worship by coming to the table, we're going to ask our Eucharist team to, to get in place. And they're going to be up here waiting to receive you. There'll be a plate of little pieces of bread and they'll offer you a piece. And they're going to say something to you that's very powerful. 
listen to what they say and be thankful and be humble. Come to him thankful and humble and take that piece of bread and dip it right into that juice. We call that intinction. Hold on to that for a minute. And that person is gonna say something pretty profound to you about the blood of Christ. And then take and eat and drink and declare the Lord's death until he returns for you. That's what Jesus was talking about in that passage when he said, and I'm gonna raise them up. He's coming back for us one day. This is not all there is. This is not all there is. And so as we get in place, I'm gonna ask that communion team to come on down. I'm gonna ask you to stand. We're gonna sing a song or two and then we'll be dismissed. But let's respond to him. If you need prayer, the team's over there. If you this morning have yielded your life to Jesus and you've said, I need the bread of life today. Would you go find one of those prayer partners over on the wall over there and tell them that so they can pray with you and talk to you and just help you understand exactly what's happening this morning? Let's just respond to him for a minute and then we'll go home. What a privilege that we have in the presence of the Lord today. What a privilege we have in the presence of the Lord today. Father, would you satisfy your people with the bread of life? provision for today and provision forever as we respond. Let's sing and when you're ready, come to the table. Thanks for listening to the Declaration Church podcast. We pray many blessings over you and your journey as you declare him to the nations. For more podcasts and teachings, visit declaration.org slash podcast. Now to live, I've come